Welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, American POWMIA's podcast, the voice of the missing in action and those that are buried as unknowns in our national cemetery. I'm your host and lead researcher, John Baird. Just a boy turning 17 Took me away from my home in Abilene I was sworn I'm a soldier now I was trained to survive And from a boy I became a man We journeyed to a place called Nam Spent 13 months of living in fear They say it's over, but I'm still here Hey America, can you hear me? Don't you remember me? Welcome to today's Story of Sacrifice, American POWMIA's podcast. Today we're going to talk about Sergeant Joseph A. Matov, who joined the U.S. Air Force from New York and was a member of the 69th 94th Security Squadron. On 5 February 1973, he was a crew member aboard an EC-47Q, call sign Baron 52, on a night reconnaissance mission over Laos. Baron 52 was an EC-47 carrying eight crew members. That was shot down over Laos during the, during the pre-dawn hours of 5 February 1973, a week after the Paris Peace Accords officially ended the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War. The remains of four crew members were supposedly recovered from the crash site, but those of the remaining four have never been found. Although the U.S. government considers them to have been killed in action, and as late as 1996, listed them all as accounted for, some family members and POW advocates believe the four possibly survived the crash. The incident has been featured on several nationwide news programs and a 1991 episode of the U.S. television series Unsolved Mysteries. Today we're going to have a couple of guests. Uh, First, I'm going to bring up Heather Atherton. Uh, Heather is uh, the daughter of a person who was involved with the air wing. Heather? Hi, thanks for having me, John. You're welcome. So tell us a little bit more about <laughs> yourself, your father, who was involved with this uh, with this air wing and, and uh, how you fit into the Baron 52 story. So uh, my, my dad was uh, drafted and um, went into the Air Force um, and was ended up in the various iterations of the um, tactical uh, electronic um, reconnaissance crew. So he was in the 361st um, twos when Baron 52 went down. He fortunate for our family and for me, I wouldn't be here if he he had been there on duty that week, was on emergency leave because my mom had to have some surgery. So he was back here in California. Um, But upon his return, pretty much as the POWs were starting to come through Clark Air Force Base, he crossed paths with them as he was returning 
thinking, you know, the peace accords had happened while he was away. Things were settling down. He was probably coming back to things winding down. Good news. Um, he got back to Uban Air Force Base and all hell had broken loose. And that um, he he that was the source of his PTSD for many, many years. I remember him talking about the Baron 52 and his grief over his colleagues um, going down in that aircraft and never really making sense to him. Um, I never knew the political significance until I started looking into it after he passed away in 2017. Um, but now I really understand why that was so traumatic for him and um, have, have you know, jumped on board to work with the Matajov family to continue to keep this story in the public narrative, you know, really, really making sure people understand it. And of course, with the 50th anniversary upon us today, in particular of the, the shoot down itself, um, we had a mission working together since 2020. I've been researching since 2018, um, but we joined forces during the, during the lockdown. You know, that was, I had a chance to really dig in and spend a lot of time on this during that period and really realized, you know, how important this was to me and our family to, you know, use my skills. I've been in, in public relations for 25 years to shed light on this story that really had been kind of, you know, fallen by the wayside, but never really resolved. The families had these burning questions that, um, you know, after knowing how it had affected me and affected our family and my dad for his entire life, um, seeing this unfold um, and never being satisfied that it was really addressed properly, I felt like it was something that I needed to to use my skills to help raise the profile of it. So we've been working closely together. I've been interviewing squadron members for years, um, working with John Matajov to really try to identify those those questions. So there's a picture of my dad, Michael Moore. He was a second lieutenant when he exited the Air Force uh, at this time when Barron went down, he was a first lieutenant. Um, and uh, such a great picture. <laughs> you know, he, his memory drives me to this every day. And um, I feel close to him helping with this. So um, I'm grateful for John, you know, kind of, and his family accepting me and, and really understanding that my affinity to do what I can to help them keep this story alive and, and uh, all of the guys' memories alive. Um, Robert Bernhardt, um, who was the person whose partial remains were actually recovered, uh, was in the seat that my dad would have been as third pilot. Okay. So, um, yeah, that was the position that my dad would have been in. And um, I think that was even harder for him, you know, knowing that, and knowing Robert's fate for sure, I think maybe helped a bit, but then just, just being so distraught about the rest of them and and he, you know, in his own personal papers and such, writing about, you know, how much confusion there was and, and how much he pushed back trying to get more search and rescues and more action and um, just never feeling satisfied enough was done. Exactly. Exactly. I'm gonna... But I remember him watching the, you know, C-SPAN coverage of the Senate Select Committee in um, in the 90s when, you know, I was a high school kid. Um, and never really getting the full story, but I knew that it was significant to him. And I knew this was his crew that they were investigating. But, uh, you know, once I, once I started to really dig in and realize the political significance of the timing with Watergate and, you know, all of the history surrounding that, um, I, I knew we had to do more. 
there he is <laughs> on the ground in Thailand. They kind of changed some settings in StreamYard now, so I have to do it a different way. I had it set up originally. <laughs> I used to be, and I could just bring them up as we're talking, but uh, now I have <laughs> a bunch of different stuff, so I'm sorry for that. I'm kind of a little bit behind here, but. Well, that's okay. So, um, so how deeply involved are you with, with uh, the, the Sergeant uh, Joseph uh, Majos family? So in 2020, after I had done my own research and was kind of feeling like I didn't know where to go from there, I really needed more context. And, and um, I thought, you know what, it's it's worth a try. And with extra time on my hands at the time with COVID lockdowns, um, that really was a, a chance for me to dig in more. And I think John had all but given up at that time. The family had um, done a presentation, and he can go into more detail on that, with several different government agencies to present their questions from when they did, uh, when the Senate committee had ordered a, a site investigation of the crash site back in 1993. There were many unresolved questions that they still had from all that paperwork that and all the reports that came out of it. Um, and they spent five years researching, had a pro bono top Washington, D.C. law firm helping them. Um, Ralph Wetterhan, who is an esteemed crash expert, um, has recovered missions out of uh, World War II down in the Philippines. Um, very credible. Nice. Um, and so he continues to work with us today. Um, all of that, you know, taking all of that into consideration, you know, it just was... Um, Sorry, I completely got lost my train of thought there for a second. <laughs> um, you know, it was important for me to to jump on board and and I was so grateful that he was open to me, you know, inserting myself into it and seeing how I could help, just kind of being another resource and a new generation to help him and and maybe take the torch from there to keep the energy out there. Gotcha. You have to forgive my dog there. So <laughs> That that's a good leeway into adding John in here. I'd like to introduce uh, John Machoff, who is the brother of uh, Joe, who's uh, still missing in action. How you doing, John? Hey, John. I appreciate you having Heather and and myself on this morning. And today is the actual fiftieth anniversary of the shootdown. And oddly enough, when we had our government presentation. Back in 2016, we opted to have that presentation on uh, the 5th of February. Uh, That was the 43rd anniversary, but this is the 50th. And um, yeah, Heather gave a good intro into it. And uh, um, without Heather, I don't think you and I would be talking today uh, because after that presentation occurred uh, with the United States government and uh, representatives from Department of Defense, congressional offices, and the Secretary of the Air Force. Um, uh, what happened was that they totally uh, disavowed any of our evidence that we submitted and shot down our appeal to have my brother's status changed back to missing in action. And I was defeated, um, and and for good reasons. I mean, I don't know how many other families that I've heard have gone down this very same path to where they just suck the energy right out of you. It's a chess game, and they own the 
they own the chessboard, they own the pieces, and they own the narrative. And whatever they say ultimately is, you know, what you're resigned to swallowing. So I had thrown in the towel, uh, a valiant attempt as I thought I had mounted for my brother. Um, and then, of course, Heather already said, uh, you know, she came on board. And I look at Heather, God bless her soul. I love her. <laughs> uh, right, I got you. <laughs> She came on board and um, kind of rekindled my interest uh, in support of her interest. Uh, she's the younger generation that's going to carry this, you know, well beyond my years. And and with your help, John, and what we're doing here today, we're going to document some of the things that I think need to be discussed uh, where the United States government and uh, our attorneys, our family, our crash investigation expert, Ralph Wetterhahn, um, and even the search and rescue team, they differ. And, and um, this needs to be documented. And again, with Heather's help, uh, I feel confident that today is a very significant day to do just that. And, I agree. Uh, I agree. And so before we deep dive into it, um, why don't you tell us about Joe? Uh, tell us about Joe. Uh, previous to his enlistment in in the Air Force and and everything that's leads leads up to it, and we want I want to I want to know about Joe. I want to get to know Joe. Yeah, well, Joe is just a member of a family of ten brothers and sisters, <laughs> and there are five boys and five girls. And uh, uh, you know, there's his memory, and I think everybody shares this opinion of Joe uh, was that he was just a a decent kid, uh, and yeah, he. Uh, um, he and I were, I think, the closest in the family, and and we oftentimes competed like brothers do, and and uh, it was that sibling rivalry, you know. Yeah, and, uh, uh, we often did a lot of things together, got in trouble together, and uh, got out of trouble as best we could together, and uh, then we, you know, as life goes, we went our separate ways. He was a year older than I was. And he was going to join the Marine Corps with a buddy. And tragically, his buddy got killed. And so he was left without a partner in crime to join the Marine Corps. So he decided um, for some odd reason he wanted to join the Air Force. Nothing against the Air Force. Uh, <laughs> but as, as a Marine, I turned out I was going to I was going to one up my brother Joe and join the Marine Corps. And uh, and as as the story now unfolds. He saw more combat than I did in the Air Force. and uh, But everybody who speaks of my brother Joe uh, uh, speaks very highly of him for the short duration that he was known. All his high school classmates and, and, and anybody who knew, knew him says the same thing. So, yeah, this, this is all about him and Heather's dad and, and uh, you know, what this unfortunate, unfortunate incident has brought us to, and that is trying to get the facts straight out of honor to uh, both their legacies. And uh, uh, our family is a, a very military family with over 100 combined years of active military service. And we even have a third generation nephew in the Navy, as we're talking. So uh, when you talk about the injustices that I think we're going to discuss a little today about the accounting, and, and the problems that this incident 
has brought to bear on our military family. Uh, there's dad. And uh, Joe is right behind dad over his right shoulder. Okay. <laughs> but, but there's our, there's our happy family. And, uh, um, but we talk about the injustices done. Our military family uh, just can't accept what we know to be, and, and in our opinion, we feel very strongly was a highly, highly questionable manner in which his accounting did not occur. And I think that was a lot. This picture now is when he was on leave uh, the last time. I can't see his rank insignia on that, but that's that's Joe and Mom in front of our Long Island, New York home. Um, And that's pretty much it. And uh, I think we're going to cover a lot of things today that need to be covered. (laughs) Yeah, I I just wanted to interject. I feel like I'm bringing the mom energy back into this as well, because Mary Matajov was a force in and of herself. I wish I could have met her. Um, So (laughs) that mama bear aspect, you know, I have two kids and, you know, I just I can't even imagine being in her position, let alone John's position. And, um, you know, in our situation as well. Um, so she, she did a lot of work really ringing a bell and, and getting this story a lot of attention back in the 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, really set the stage to continue the work that John did when after the after they were, you know, the, the burial in Arlington and and John took the torch from there. Um, just, you know, can't give up. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, I'd, before kind of to prep myself for a little bit more for the podcast, I've always knew the Baron 52 story and, uh, or the lack thereof. And, uh, you know, when I was digging through the DIA archives and, and, and the POWMIA stuff, I, I read so many letters back and forth from, from Mary to the, to the federal government about, about Joe and trying to get Joe home. So yeah, she was a, 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 sor- a force to be reckoned with for sure. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, I'm going to let you guys go into this a little bit deeper. Where do you Where do you want to start, Heather? Um, let's see. <laughs> um, you know, our goal when I came on board, obviously with my background in communications, um, I that's just where my mind goes. So I knew once I really got into getting to know John and and what they had been doing, that was a little more out of the spotlight um, in the previous 20 years since the, since the Arlington burial, um, that was where I got the most information on, you know, what the current status was of it. um, And just how exhausting an effort they had done trying to get in front of government officials at different generations, different iterations and elections and, you know, talk to so many people. And um, it just felt like it was time to take it out of that context and, and, and back to the public um, like Mary had done so many years before. And so, um, you know, we, I had a lot of reading and research and really getting up to speed to see the whole picture and really understand it. And so uh, about a year ago, we decided that, you know, with the 50th coming up, that that was the time to really step out and find ways that we could get the, get the story back into the conversation. And so um, about two years ago, I got involved um, with a nonprofit called Legacies of War 
that does amazing work in Southeast Asia. They have been around for almost 20 years, and currently they have a $45 million um, designation from Congress to that all 100% goes to Southeast Asia to remove UXOs from the bombs that were dropped during the secret war. And in addition to that, their operational um, team here in the U.S., they also have some other projects that they work on, including educational programs about the secret war, um, vetting different materials and books about it, um, and, and making those available to the public, searching and, and gathering stories of families that were displaced um, and, you know, refugees that came to the U.S., uh, military that were involved in the secret war, trying to gather those and make those available, readily available for those who want to learn more about that part of our history. And that really attracted me. And I've been, I've become actually a board member with the organization. And with that involvement, they offered for us to write a newsletter piece last fall, explaining kind of our, our story and our connection with, with Laos. And um, that kind of evolved into the USA Today piece that hit a couple weeks ago and actually went into print this weekend um, in USA Today's weekend edition just in time for the anniversary. So we're really trying to embrace, you know, whatever opportunities come along to just make sure that these boys are remembered. And they're such a symbol for the entire POWMA effort that a lot of it has really ended up back in the shadows again the last 20 years. So just trying to see how we can help raise the profile of all of those unresolved stories and make sure that there's accounting. Exactly. So we'll start at the beginning. So uh, um, the aircraft, uh, the, the Paris Peace Accords were signed. There should not have been, according to the Peace Accords, any aircraft flying over Laos uh, was taken from there. Well, the the mission on, on Baron 52 uh, primarily was they flew over the Ho Chi Minh Trail after the peace accords were signed, and, and they were charged with intercepting whatever uh, enemy radio transmissions they could intercept to identify units, either by name or by equipment, and I think their focus for this particular mission was to identify tank columns that they knew were coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to take over Saigon. And, and they would, uh, if they got a fix on the location um, of the transmitter or the units, they would send that information to higher headquarters who would uh, verify it, send it to um, uh, B-52 bombers uh, out of Guam, and they would fly over the Ho Chi Minh Trail and and get rid of the target identified by Baron 52 and other similar missions. So this did go on after the peace treaty was signed, which is the premise to what I believe to be the, the controversy associated with what happened to Baron 52. Uh, because if in fact any of those crew were captured, then we had a problem. And the problem was primarily that this could derail the peace treaty that just was signed a week before this mission took off the ground. And this was a bona fide combat mission. This, is one of the, this was the last known American casualties that flew a combat mission in Laos for the entire Vietnam War. So that's the significance of this mission. And a lot of people don't connect those dots. 
But when you start hearing about the controversy that we might talk about today, those dots need to be connected because that, in my opinion, is what causes this controversy. And what, what was Joe's job on that aircraft? Uh, he was a, a radio system supervisor. And, and, and I think he, he and one of the other crew shared that, that title. And, and his job was to make sure that all of his, his secret uh, operators who were using this top secret crypto gear, um, everything was functioning and everything was going according to standard operating procedures. And they were totally devoid of Heather's dad's uh, uh, crew who flew the airplane. And from what I understand, uh, they were not allowed to co-mingle. The, the people in the back, uh, and Heather, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I have this dead on. The people in the back, which was my brother's squadron mates, they literally dictated where that plane had to fly because they had to pursue whatever intercepted radio signals they got in order to get a true triangulation of where the, the target was. So the aircraft pilots had to listen to the enlisted guys in the back. It was not awkward for them, but for those in the military who know, enlisted personnel do not tell officers what to do. But in this case, that had to be. So it was a commonly accepted standard operating procedures from the operational standpoint from within the aircraft between the back enders and the front enders. And, and um, they intercepted uh, um, uh, enemy intercepts uh, and then did, as I described, sent them on to higher headquarters. And that was their primary function after the peace treaty was signed. Okay. So they're, they're flying the mission now. And, and uh, from my understanding, they, there was some possible radio communication saying that they were taking some, um, some anti-aircraft fire at, at one point. Uh, then, then uh, later on, within a few minutes, they reported everything was a-okay, and then, and then that was the last time they heard from it. Is that correct? That's that's precisely correct, and that's how they knew something was wrong. They had predetermined a sequential reporting in uh, a communication that told every everybody back at the base everything is okay. We're continuing our mission as planned, and when that did not occur. That's when the entire scenario began to unfold is the best way I can describe it. And, and uh, that's when they realized that they may have lost uh, Baron 52. Right. And so, so they launched, uh, um, my understanding is they, they went looking for the aircraft. They spent quite a few days uh, trying to find it. Initially, they found Baron, Baron 52's crash site. Uh, but they determined or somebody had thought, you know, through photo reconnaissance that it was an old site. And therefore, they kind of skipped over it until somebody else determined from another recon flight that it was Baron 52. Is that correct? That That is correct. And then from there, they sent in a search and rescue team um, uh, within, I think, a day or two after the original uh, mis mislabel of a former crash site. Uh, and And that's where. I guess we pick up the story as to what happened all the way up until 2023, while we're talking today, all the problems associated with it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and let you go 
where you want to go from here with it. I know they, they, they did uh, launch two jelly greens. Uh, they did have some uh, OV-10s that uh, or bird dogs that were kind of watching over the crash site. They never did receive any radio communications from anybody on the ground uh, during the, the whole thing, from my understanding. Um, I'll just let you take it from there. Well, we can get into a, a two-week conversation on some of this stuff, John, but uh, the, uh, the bottom line is yes. Um, uh, there were no identifiable survival radio beacons heard, but there were survival radio beacons detected, but the United States government immediately disavowed that they were associated with Baron 52 crew. And thus began the controversy. And, and uh, there was also a, an intercepted enemy transmission saying five and a half to six hours after the plane was determined to have been lost, that they captured four air pirates. And, and immediately the problem surfaced as to whether or not that enemy intercept um, uh, you know, pertain to the crew members of Baron 52. The United States government disavows that it did. And then we question that. And, and the race was on to, to either say there wasn't survivors. Um, and, and then from that, you, you have to ask why that enemy message that was received did not pertain to Baron 52 if that was the only plane shot down within a 24 hour period. So uh, the controversy began. And, um, and I want to add real quick, the significance of that, of that, of this message that I'm showing on screen here, uh, where they, they say four or four pirates. And that's what, uh, that's what the Lao um, communists in, in the, in the Vietnamese referred to, uh, pilots or, or, or crewmen aboard aircraft or pirates. Yes, there is back and forth as to when that, that term pirates was used or not used. And, and, uh, but all the, all the concern, there was other radio intercepts or messages that like you're showing now from our government, uh, that say that, uh, there was a, a road observer who, a, who witnessed those four being marched down a road. Um, and they were clean shaven, clean shaven um, but still the United States government disavows that they're associated with Baron 52. Um, and we believe, the family believes, uh, that the controversy and the disconnect between identification of that message to Baron 52 is more a political one, where, uh, again, had had live American prisoners been taken after the peace treaty was signed. That was an issue for the Nixon administration and, and Dr. Kissinger, uh, because it could have derailed uh, the repatriation of prisoners. And I think the first 40 prisoners were already scheduled and were on their way back within days after the peace treaty was yeah. signed. That was very serious. Yeah. That was operation homecoming. Very serious stuff here. And, and to this day, there are so many other things that uh, we don't have time to discuss, 
in today's broadcast of, of things that were said and, and um, artifacts that were found or not found at the crash site that lead us to believe that four of those crew did survive. Um, and it's just uh, where uh, an article that was written in VFW magazine in, in February of this year uh, alludes to the disparities between what the government says versus the reality of the evidence that um, uh, they they got from the excavation of the crash site itself, and that that's a very very clearly defined picture of the crash site from from the one of the Jolly Greens. Um, yep. Where else can we go from here? Mm -hmm. Well, just a note on that. I mean, it, it more begs the question with the with the report of the the pilots or pirates on the road is okay. Well, if it if it isn't Baron Fifty Two, then who is it? You know, did you investigate who that was? Heather, brings and that's up, never been resolved. Bring up a very good point. And and during the Senate Select Committee uh, hearings on POWMA affairs, uh, Senator Bob Smith actually asked. Uh, the senior analyst for the Defense Intelligence Agency, who was testifying under oath, mind you, if to Heather's point, if those four did not belong to Baron 52, who were they? And and Bob DeStat, the senior analyst, gave one of the most ridiculous answers to this day has never been challenged. And, and his response to the United States Senator was a friend of a friend of mine was a Vietnamese helicopter pilot who was shot down and we're trying to find him to determine who those four were, if not from his helicopter. That's right. And, and the salient point that I, I bring up is, if they can't identify who those four prisoners were, that tells me they never pursued that identity at all. Mm -hmm. That boggles my mind. If, in fact, there's a question if they're American POWs that were captured or not, and you never went to the fullest extreme to prove or disprove that, then who are we? Yeah, it, it, it just makes no yeah. sense for the senior analyst for the Defense Intelligence Agency to not have that answer to United States Senator. And he got away with it. So there is more of the controversy. Um, and, and we can get into what the Defense Intelligence Agency did or did not do and how we can actually ask them questions because no one's willing even one of my congressional representatives from Wyoming, Senator Enzi, told me that he was going to ask about some of that documentation that pertains to the Defense Intelligence Agency's parallel accounting system that didn't match the official accounting system of the United States government, who was a live POW and who was not. They're called the Torsen documents. Senator Enzi told me he was going to ask the Secretary of the Air Force why those were not analyzed and a response given to our attorneys, which we, we gave in the presentation. We actually provided those documents. 
why they were not analyzed and an answer given back. And Senator Enzi, may he rest in peace, passed away a couple of years ago. He never got a response that he gave to me about those documents, because as soon as anybody brings them up and the workings of the Defense Intelligence Agency, we hit a brick wall. Oh, okay. And no one can explain to me anything associated with what the DIA said or did other than what we have on tape at the Senate Select Committee uh, Committee from Bob DeStat. And okay. he actually gave evasive answers and false testimony directly about, you know, what happened to Barron 52. And that's been proven to which I have documentation to substantiate. So from there, we find ourselves here discussing uh, and documenting these things. Well, I, don't gonna, know I, miss. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I missed where that's concerned. You brought it up, and I think that I'm glad you did bring it up. Uh, but, um, yeah, there are just so many other things about that uh, search and rescue team that was at the crash site. The uh, excavation report that has evidence indicating survival, those two pistols the enemy radio transmission that's being disavowed. Um, and we can go on and on and on. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to bring it back a little bit. Like you were saying there was, was talk about, uh, so, so they, they had a SAR mission on, and then it was nine, nine February. Uh, mm -hmm. that they actually inserted uh para rescue men into the crash site to survey it, try to recover any remains or, or, survivors if there were any uh they also inserted somebody uh from joe's um uh air wing or what do you whatever you want to security squadron yeah yeah a squadron uh to destroy any sensitive equipment and uh also to survey it can we talk a little bit about that yeah there's there's controversy as to whether or not search and rescue people were able to determine what DPAA used as their expert opinion as to the survival of any or all of the crew. And, and they were there just to rescue and, and grab remains. For the 40 minutes that they were on the ground, uh, uh, it is impossible for anybody to make that determination considering the configuration of the crashed plane and whether or not there was combatants in the area to which they had to look after their own survival. Uh, extract remains, uh, uh, determine what sensitive security equipment was either there or not there and damage uh, or, or, or destroy whatever was left. So there's a lot of controversy as to um, the effectiveness and the short duration of those search and rescue personnel on the crash site, to which, in my opinion, uh, the DPAA has totally uh, uh, mastered and put a harness on all of that stuff and twisted it into they all died in the crash and here's how we know. And a lot of it um, is highly questionable. And, and I have a letter from Colonel Humphreys that was written to our family in which he opens his letter and says to my mom and dad, we just want to let you know that a lot of our decisions were based on speculation. 
when people point the finger at me and say, well, you don't know, you're guessing. Well, the very premise of that they were all killed in action was based on guesses by the wing commander who was in field. So there's here we're getting a back and forth to which this should not be a he said, she said uh, a thing. It's, it's based by the facts, those two pistols being one of those, as to speculation as to how those pistols got there. There's no definitive answer, but when you use common sense and the laws of deduction and reasoning, it falls that we have more to substantiate that crews survived than the Department of Defense or DPA has to say that they all died in the crash. But because they have the final word on everything, their final word becomes the official record to which we have no other recourse, absolutely none. And many other families will say that very same thing to you. They have no say-so after the United States government makes a resolution on their cases. Well, this case is currently closed since... And, and, since and To Heather's point, the case is closed. So for them to even entertain what we're talking about is a is a showstopper they won't even do it right right status would have to be changed and that's why we're talking uh mm-hmm. not just this family but there are many other POWMIA families that 50 years after the signing of the peace accord this brings up to them all these questions that they have about their family members loss that they also feel um, remain questionable. And I have a list. I have a list of five of us who have agreed that they'd be willing to share their family stories. So it's not just the Matajov family. It's not just uh, Heather's dad. There are so many other people impacted by this 50-year anniversary of this peace accord. And not just Baron 52. These are other... Other oh, incidents, other crashes, yeah. That yeah, all the five I have are, are not mm-hmm. just that they are Different other cases, yeah. Other cases, other cases. I'd like to read. I've got a. I've got the actual after action report from uh, from Jolly Green sixty. There was two Jolly Greens that were that were sent out on the on the recovery mission, the initial one, and uh, Jolly Green sixty was running low. And uh, in other words, they're the one that inserted the PJs and the technician. Uh, to look over the crash site. They were the first ones on the ground. And uh, I want to read their after-action report. Um, let me pull this up on the screen here real quick. and Because sure. there's a lot of information in this that I think has been overlooked. So this is the actual uh, debriefing of that of the Jolly Green 60. And it says, A summary of SAR actions on 9 February 73, Jelly Green 71 and 60 were launched at uh, 1050 Lima to recover bodies of eight crewmen from Baron 52. And so they're already assuming in this that they're just doing a recovery, that there's no there's no actual uh, live survivors. Um, uh, Baron 52 and AC 47 downed in eastern Laos. The flight was uneventful until we reached a point at that time 
they were at 950 MSL and received an activity lights and launch lights. In other words, what they're saying here is they, they received a missile threat uh, going into the area. Um, evasive actions were taken with no problems encountered. Both aircraft arrived at the SAR area at 1320 Lima. Uh, Jolly Green 71 held five miles north, while Jolly Green 60 proceeded to the location of Baron 52. Jolly Green 60 lowered three PJs plus a technician to the crashed aircraft to recover the bodies and get positive identification on the aircraft. The aircraft appeared to have been crashed nearly vertically and upside down. Both wings were sheared off and the fuselage was completely gutted by flames. The only portion left intact was the tail. After about 45 minutes in the hover, Jolly Green 60 recovered two of the PJs and then because of fuel shortage, egressed the area. Jolly Green 71 then proceeded to the area and picked up the two remaining men. Egress for both aircraft was accomplished with no problems, and both aircraft uh, recovered at NKP at 1600 Lima. The PJs recovered the upper portion of one body and positively determined that all crew members had perished. A large piece of metal bearing the aircraft number 636 positively identified the aircraft as Baron 52. Now, I'm not going to show any more of that with, with the names but uh, of the crew members, but do uh, you want to talk a little bit about that and, and what kind of discrepancies there might be? Well, we get, we get to the, the narration that you just, you just read to us, and, and uh, uh, it, it's very difficult for me to, to pass judgment on, on some of those finer details, um, because a, as it's written, it, it's 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 kind of ambiguous as to what it means to some of the basic things that that are in conflict between us and the Department of Defense, and um, uh, it, it's difficult to go out down to a one line explanation of what you just read. It, it, it's, right. it's a very, very complex case. What, what I think I should do is go to my, my file here and they're within reach and, and read to you some of the things that I think helps your, your listening audience understand a very basic, let, let's call it a lie. Uh, not that we've caught the government in, but what is written on the Torreson documents about the, lack of an explanation of how the defense intelligence agency had a separate accounting list for people that were captured alive when the United States government had them killed. Right. Right. And then, and then we can go back and then back to your narrative and, and go line by line as to what it means to the defense intelligence agencies a parallel accounting system. And, and the question remains, how can the people in the defense intelligence agencies have information pertaining to, and Baron 50 crew, Baron 52 crew is one of them, four Americans that were captured, but then died in captivity. First of all, they had to know they were captured. And secondly, they, how did they know they died in captivity, and when was that determination made, and by whom? 
Right, right. That is that is one of the most salient yet to be explained to me. Our lawyers, Ralph Wetterhan, uh, even Heather and and her family, when it comes to her dad, always concerned about what no one knows about Baron Fifty Two. And until the Defense Intelligence Agency's reporting system that no one can explain to me is answered, we're at a stalemate here. So documenting this such as we are, I mean, I'll go get those documents and I'll read to you line by line. And in the interim here, until I return to the camera, Heather, maybe you can explain some of those things where we have those questions where not just our family, but many other families have similar questions that the United States government has failed to answer. And there's, there's a few things I want to bring up here real quick there. I know there was a lot of discrepancies in the SAR reporting, the search and rescue reporting uh, where that they had to pull out because they were low on fuel and they were receiving hostile fire from small arms fire and different things like that, which according to the SAR report that I just read from those that were right there on the, you know, right there on the hover above the crash site, there was no reporting of any, any hostile fire or any of that. Uh, the next thing I want to talk, you know, real quickly mentioned to kind of get us to that point uh, that you're talking about is in 1992 or three, I think it was, is when they actually went in uh, the joint task force, full accounting uh, went in and did an excavation of the site. And the only things, uh, the only human remains or possible human remains that were recovered was one tooth and uh, 20 or 30 small fragments of bone. And uh, they determined that just based on that little of remains that was recovered, and it was the remains were not DNA tested by any means, uh, they determined that, that all the men aboard that aircraft were now accounted for, and they decided to do a group burial at Arlington National Cemetery for a mall and close the case. So that mm -hmm. kind of gets us to where... Uh, you know, to kind of get us to, to where you're talking about with that report. And, 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 and that opens up another bit of conversation about why some of these things are kind of, uh, I don't want to say off limits, but out of respect and to the other families of the crew members, we know that four of those crew members uh, perished in the crash. So when we start asking questions as my family feels we should be able to ask about those bone fragments that were excavated from the crash site, there were no DNA tests done. And I actually read a document in which it was an interdepartmental document saying the Matajov family wants uh, to have DNA tests done on those bones which requires exhumation of the actual remains in the casket at Arlington. And that's unfair to the other families. And that person is correct. Why would I even think to uh, break the resolution, the, 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 uh, uh, the significance of those family members who feel that their family members' remains are honored and entombed and buried in Arlington National Cemetery by disturbing those remains. And I agree with that. 
Agreed. 100%. I agree with that. So therein lies the problem is that when we want to talk about artifacts at, at the crash site and who died and who didn't, um, we're actually encroaching upon other hallowed ground from other families. And, and they don't deserve for any one family such as ours for, to do that to them. And I agree with that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, what was extracted from the uh, excavation from the crash site itself is is now encapsulated in the excavation report to which the archaeologist who signed off on it said there's only enough stuff here to categorically say the remains identifies one person even though there are four families and myself included who feel four of them did die in that crash at the excavation there was only enough artifacts to say only one person was represented from those artifacts. Yeah, and this is where I'm going to bring up during the during the excavation, the recovery excavation. Um, there was two pistols that were found side by side, buried. Let's let's go ahead and go into that a little bit. Yeah, the short version on that is um, how do do two pistols get what they did when they do the excavation? It's like an archaeological dig, and they they actually make a grid. For those of you who are familiar with it, you already know. They make a grid, and they they put lines in it, and then anything found is identified on that grid in the exact location where it's extracted. And they did a grid of the fuselage, and every any time something was found, it was deemed within the fuselage where the majority of the artifacts were found or not. And what you brought up, John, are the two pistols that not only were not found within the grid of the excavation site, nor the exact location of the fuselage within that site. These two pistols were found off the grid, 15 meters uphill from the fuselage and buried side by side. And and I think Heather already made a comment, you know, if it's uphill, it's it's not like they got there by nature. Uh, uh, um, 20 years of water. Uh, they had to get up there somehow to defy gravity, one to be uphill and two to be side by side. And, and, and the assumption that I make is that, of course, that had to be placed there by human hands. And if that's true, which human hand put them there? Yeah, and I also want to add my opinion, inject my little bit of my opinion into that same scenario uh, through through the escaping invasion and things like that, 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 that these men are tra- trained for. Uh, the first thing they're going to do is go uphill, and they're going to get to the highest point that they can get to for rescue. And, and you and I go through in our own lines, if we were on that 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 plane what would we do if we survived and how would you can't answer that and i can't answer that because you don't know unless you're there so there's a there's a lot of controversy associated with just those two pistols to which the united states government has no explanation no analysis of those pistols and they avoid the question because of just that and and to this to this day and to my last breath i hope i hope one day that uh um, all I, I guess all I'm hoping to do is change my brother's status back to missing in action, which tells to eternity 
unless they find his remains, that they will always be searching for him. Exactly. And that's the only honorable thing uh, for this particular scenario um, to placate the word honor in accounting. Mm -hmm. No man left behind, fullest possible accounting. That simply has not occurred if you still have these very questions that no one can explain. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, villagers who scavenged the site, they didn't take those pistols. Um, no one can explain to me if it's not villagers. The only other humans there were maybe the enemy when they ultimately came to the site. They didn't put those pistols there and bury them. Then that leaves the other humans that brought were brought down with the plane, the crew. In, in my opinion, it's only the crew who could have placed those pistols there for whatever reason. But yeah. no one in the government will even entertain that thought because to them that counters their written scenario and their mandate that no one survived. So we constantly butt heads about you know that fact and, and, and many other facts. They had eight crew, eight pistols. Four pistols were found. There's a message that says four air pirates were captured. That adds up to eight. Eight crew, eight survival kits. Isn't it interesting that only artifacts from four survivor kits were found at the crash site? No other artifacts to add up to the total of eight crew were found at the crash site, but no one wants to talk about that. No one wants to talk about that. And that to me makes no sense, no common sense whatsoever. And if that's proper accounting, then I question the accounting standard operating procedures for, for any person that is lost in combat behind enemy lines. If that's how they account, then there's something wrong. And before I forget, where DPAA is concerned, I go on record saying there are some great people at DPAA who do a tremendous amount of work. There's Most no definitely. doubt in my mind. So I'm not here to denigrate everybody in DPAA, nor am I here to do that about everybody in the Secretary of the Air Force office. But we, we've discussed certain things that there are people within the DPAA who choose not to even discuss for the obvious reasons. They can't explain it. And it leans towards survival of some of the crew. That's why they won't discuss it, because that narrative has been set going way back to when the peace accords were signed. And then the combat mission that took place after the peace accords were signed that shouldn't have happened, to which people, in my opinion, survived. And there were prisoners taken after the peace treaty was signed. So there's the impasse. That, that's the hurdle that we can't get over. Yep. Yeah, this is some valuable context for people as, you know, anything that may be coming up in the next few weeks as the 50th of Operation Homecoming takes place leading up to v Vietnam Veterans Day on March 29th when all of that finished. Um, you know, this is an important story that kind of adds a lot more context to that narrative. Heather, to pick up on that. I'm going to find those Taurus documents. And, and <laughs> I'll be right back. Obviously, you know, there's, uh, I, I had a chance to interview um, um, Mr. Let's see, where is his book? Um, 
Mr. Bedinger, uh, who was one of the the Lulus, one of the only uh, official Laos POWs who was captured and had, was interned for several years in Hanoi uh, with some of the most infamous POWs and was released, one of the very last to be released. And it was still negotiations were continuing to go on for these nine from Laos right up until I think a day or so before they were finally released at the end of March. So these were very tenuous times for Kissinger's negotiations with Hanoi over all the prisoners, let alone the ones from Laos. Those were always the most contentious um, contentious ones. Uh, and, and it's been hard to get those details. So, um, you know, continuing that, you know, the, the narrative continues to, to find out more information about what happened there. And, you know, a lot of people didn't know about what we were doing in Laos as well. So helping people understand what we were doing there, how long we had operated there. Um, there's another, a great book that I just recently read through the kind of our internal book club with Legacies of War called Shooting at the Moon by Roger Warner. I'll just give him a little shout out. Has a really, really great explanation of what went on, you know, for all the way back to the early 50s and um, how we were operating in Laos. So that's a really great reference book if people are interested in learning more about the conflict there and, and how far back it goes and connections to the Bay of Pigs, and it's quite fascinating. Sorry about that. I was typing there. <laughs> well, so, being that we're on the 50th anniversary, um, a lot of the documents that, that surrounds Baron 52 are still classified, from my understanding. And uh, they do have a 50-year classification on them. And or do you guys anticipate that uh, any more of these documents would potentially become declassified in the near future? Uh, we hope so. Um, we've, we've submitted FOIAs, um, especially with the Torsen documents to get, you know, full access to all of his documentation from the Senate Select Committee, but that has never really been addressed or, or we've been told that those weren't releasable um, due to security reasons, we don't nothing nothing was explained beyond that, so we don't know what the nature of that is. Um, but yes, I and mean, we're hoping with this milestone that that may open the door for more paperwork to be to be released publicly. Maybe I said it a little too soon. He wasn't quite ready. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got some. These are the Taurus and documents, and I've got several of them here. These are, I don't know if you can see that. We can. And, uh, I'm going to read you some excerpts. And I, and I have a very other interesting read that that is in, and I'll read it from the se actual report from the Senate Select Committee on POW MNI Affairs. And it is a statement made by President Nixon himself, not about Baron 52 uh, directly, but it has to do with why he needed to get out of Vietnam. And I'll read it. And, I'll, and, and that statement came from the famous White House tapes. And I was amazed to have tripped over it in this report because it has direct impact about not only Barron 52, but other cases as well, why we had to wash our hands of Vietnam. But anyway, on page 28 of the Torreson documents, and this was given to the Senate Select Committee, and this is written by... Sedgwick Torreson, who was a researcher 
who was hired for the sole purposes of finding anything associated with live Americans um, that were left behind, which of course was the the Senate Select Committee's mission. He had been former CIA operating over there back at that time. And it says, in addition, there is an indication that the Defense Intelligence Agency had as yet unspecified information uh, that some United States Air Force personnel lost in Laos in February of 1973 had been captured alive and had died in captivity. Uh, Recovered material also shows the Air Force officially reporting confirmation they had died, but without recovery of remains. What is unclear is the basis for DIA's conclusions, how long they survived into captivity, what was their actual fate, and how the Air Force confirmed death without the recovery of remains. In short, there is evidence that the administration has information about some unaccounted for Americans who may have been captured alive but denied public release of this information and and that all of these individuals were later declared dead while in a missing status. The reasons why this was done are unclear and a full accounting, not just in name, is demanded. Now, this is what Sedgwick Torreson submitted to the Senate Select Committee. What did they do with this information? Absolutely nothing. Here's here's some more. This is page 33 of the the Torreson documents. In early February, an EC-47 aircraft based in Thailand is shot down in southern Laos. On February 12th, the Air Force reports that they were confirmed one crew member is dead. On February 22nd, the Air Force reports confirmed the entire crew is dead, although not all the remains are recovered. In February 1974, remember this is 1974 now, DIA's casualty report changes their status from missing in action to code KK, died in captivity. There is no explanation for DIA's conclusion that some had been captured alive and then they may have been killed. Information totally inconsistent with the Air Force's official version. And with his, with what he wrote here, or tabs, he submitted his substantiating credible documents to show why he was able to make the statements I just read to you. So... The first one says an Air Force document pending declassification. Second one says a DIA document, tab 28. And then the third one says Department of Defense document, tab 29. As late as 19, well, it says in February 1974, DIA's casual report changes their status and information totally inconsistent with the Air Force's official version. As late as 1979, DIA analytical comments raised the possibility that some from this aircraft may have been captured, but DIA initiates no action to have any of the status reviewed. And in the last paragraph on this this page, several months later, 
Mr. Clemens issues instructions that there will be no more status changes to POW unless such proposed changes have first submitted to him for his review. This action has the effect of inhibiting the statutory authority of the service secretaries. Perhaps as a sign of the times, no individual after Commander Harley H. Hall and none of the 61 reported dead and without the recovery of the remains during January 1973 to May of 1975 in Southeast Asia are ever recommended for change to a POW status. In fact, Defense Intelligence Agency even stops its wartime practice of annotating weekly casualty reports to identify those individuals on whom it had information that they had been captured an action more reflective of a policy decision than a simple administrative correction. So he went on record saying, none of this is going to happen. And this has to do with, in my opinion, why President Nixon made the following comment. And, and I'm going to read this comment as it is written. And, and this is, this is the, the actual report of the Senate Select Committee. And you can see all my <laughs> my annotations with all the yellow stickies. I should have stock in the yellow sticky company. All right, on page 886 of this, see those yellow? I'm gonna to read to you what President Nixon said in the Oval Office, and this came off the White House tapes. And this is on the 27th of March, 1973, and this is the president talking, and you'll be amazed as to who he says this to. I don't believe that I should go out on national television like tonight or tomorrow and go out on the Watergate Commission and then come on the next day on national television on Vietnam. My view would be to get the Vietnam out of the way and maybe get this right if you could. I think that gives you time. Here it is. He said that to none other than H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, I can't pronounce his name, and Ronald Ziegler, the three Watergate conspirators. So this is the president of the United States. It's an official record of the Senate Select Committee giving reason why he needs to get out of Vietnam so the Watergate conspirators can get it right because he had to go on and fight for his political legacy in Watergate. That's why Vietnam had to be scrubbed. No mention of the POWs here. Oh. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. He's fighting for his Watergate problems to go away, and he's trying to delay whatever he says on television about Vietnam because he had this thing called Watergate looming. It's in this report. So when people ask me, well, why do you think, you know, Baron 52 was such a problem? There it is. And in this Here's the last, here's a page that 
Sedgwick Tarson submitted to the Senate Select Committee. And, and that's his signature down there. That's Sedgwick Tarson's signature. It says, uh, the eight U.S. Air Force officers and enlisted men on a U.S. Air Force EC-47 aircraft and lost while on a signals intelligence mission over Laos in February 1973 were reported as having been killed by the U.S. Air Force three weeks after their loss in the absence of any compelling evidence, <clears throat> evidence of death, and in a manner inconsistent with the normal casualty investigation procedures. Furthermore, United States military intelligence resources in Laos and Thailand, which could have been employed to help determine the fate of such personnel, may have been actively prevented from doing so by the Central Intelligence Agency station in Vientiane, Laos. There it is. Additional information, which can only be made available by Defense Intelligence Agency and JCRC, is required to complete this review of the numbers and, the, and assess the impact of these two sets of books on the POW MIA issue. So he's identifying that there are two sets of accounting systems within Defense Intelligence Agency. Not one person has gotten an explanation as to what that meant to Baron 52. No one, no one. The Secretary of the Air Force, when I asked about that, she told me to go back to DPAA. <laughs> when I went to DPAA, they told me KK status was something used just for a short period of time. When I went to Senator Michael Enzi to ask him to do what no one else has been able to do, he told me he was going to call the Secretary of the Air Force directly, personally, for me, shook my hand, looked me in the eyes and said, you don't have to explain to me anymore which, than you've already explained to me. We parted company. before. Before he passed on, I got a letter from his office. It wasn't a letter. It was an email. Didn't even have his signature on it. Not one mention of the Taurus and documents of the DIA after he had talked to the Secretary of the Air Force. Why is that whenever we bring up the Defense Intelligence Agency with the Taurus and documents that I just read to you and your viewing audience, with the implications, the serious implications that those documents bring to bear on this very case, why is it that no one can and will get into the Defense Intelligence Agency other than Sedgwick Torson, who had the top secret clearance to do research for the Senate Select Committee? He got all this stuff that he gave to the committee. The committee Sadly, he's, he's passed away as well. So, you know, we're trying Maybe to find someone to, to you know... Help dig into Maybe. that, and hopefully the fiftieth, you know, will will help with some of that. Although those those documents were collected thirty years thirty years ago, um, I don't know. That's that's really another big part of our mission is to get this those declassified. Why we jump on any opportunity, as Heather stated earlier, and we have other opportunities annually that come around to rekindle these very things. That have gone for some unknown reason to the curb. 
and no one, no one is willing to take those documents and what I read and get answers to what I just read to you. So what can my, what can our listeners, I mean, this, this is, this is on the, on YouTube, but uh, as soon as we're done here, I will be uploading this to my audio podcast, which has a lot more listeners worldwide. Um, what can people do to help you? Well, any connection to it, please reach out and, and share their stories with us. We have an email address. They can reach out to baron 52 research at gmail.com. And, um, you know, if they have any connection, personal papers, you know, their own recollection that they'll, they'll go on record and, and do a recorded interview. Um, you know, we will connect, try to connect with, you know, more media opportunities and such. Even if they want to keep it private, we can do that as well. It's knowledge, you know, to help us find the right path. And thank you, Heather. I mean, this is why Heather's here. And this is why I really appreciate what she's done for me. And, and of course, my family and many other POW families, she's going to bring it into the next generation. And um, she's right. If you know anything and you have something to contribute, contact Heather at the at the email address. Could you repeat your email address again, Heather, sure. for people to write it down? It's baron52research at gmail.com. So B-A-R-O-N 52research at gmail.com. And I'll also put that into the show notes too. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for the opportunity, John. Yeah, and, and and I apologize for my tirade that you all just listened to, but it, it, you can tell receipts well, to show it. Up. It gets my hackles up, and and I don't have anybody who's, and I'm going to say it on air, who has the balls to question what I just read. No one is willing. Congressional representatives. When we presented that stuff as evidenced in our presentation, we presented that. Not one analyst has analyzed that evidence, but they say they've done everything they have they're ever going to do for the Matajov family. Well, that is just plain and simple BS. And God bless the present people working at DPAA. Again, I do not mean to denigrate everybody at DPAA. But you give me the names of the officials, if they listen to what I just read, you give me the names of those officials who are willing to take those comments made by Sedgwick Torreson to heart and analyze those with credible responses and analysis to prove to me why every member of Baron 52 should be KIA. They haven't done that. No, nope, not be, at all. They should be MIA. Just given those documents. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much to this story. I mean, we yeah. didn't even scratch the surface into it. <laughs> Everything from the start to, to where we are today. Um, I, I mean, sometime in the future, I think we need to do a part two on this thing. You know, sure. to, to really dive into those documents a little bit. Stay posted, yeah. And, uh yeah, I'd love and to. to and, and to that point, John, uh, Ralph Wetterhan's article in the February issue of the BFW magazine. If DPAA and the Secretary of the Air Force wants to prove to every veteran from foreign wars as a member that's on the rolls of the VFW across this country, if in fact, 
the DPAA wants to prove that they are going to do the fullest possible accounting, no man left behind, they should, at a duty to that very responsibility only, respond to Ralph Wetterharm's article in the VFW magazine. And I challenge anybody listening to this broadcast to contact DPAA and ask them why they have not done that yet. And are they going to do that? If DPAA doesn't respond to Ralph Wetterhan's assertions, they're useless. And every service person who ever fought in combat should be taken that to heart. Yeah. Plain and simple. Really? Okay. I'm well, thank you, John. We appreciate the time very much. No, I appreciate you attention. Been over that, and, and John Bear. Yeah, uh, we really appreciate this time, and we always get confused as to which John Heather's talking about. <laughs> John, John B. But uh, truly, truly appreciate uh, the time on air today. So, contact Heather if you have anything. VFW members, contact DPAA. If you agree with anything we've said here today, uh, Secretary of the Air Force members, uh, you're on call. You've just been put on call as well. Uh, a lot of genuine people within the DPAA who mean well. But with this case, there are others there who have some splaining to do, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah and I think one of those roadblocks is no longer there. So I think yes. I think help. For another conversation. Exactly. <laughs> That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Well, I appreciate both of your time and allowing me to be able to have you on to tell Joe's story. And uh, hopefully, um, with a little bit of poking and prodding at our government, we can get his status changed back to missing in action. And uh, I mean, that's that's my ultimate goal in this whole thing is, is you know, keep his story alive um, and bring him home. He's, he's well, out there. Joe, Joe appreciates it. Uh, yeah. To be quite frank, Heather's dad appreciates it, mm -hmm. you know, and many other POWMIA families appreciate it yeah. because this kind of reminds re reminds them that they're not forgotten either. And that's yeah. where this anniversary is involved. The upcoming annual events that we all know, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, POWMIA Recommendation Day, Vietnam Veterans Day, we can go on and on and on. Yeah. Um, so, uh, all of those people collectively appreciate it. So Ralph Wetterhan appreciates it, mm -hmm. all the work that he's done. So, um, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you guys very much. And, uh, all the listeners will be looking out for the audio version. It should be out later today. Uh, Sounds thank good. You. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stories of Sacrifice podcast. This has been a production of the U.S. POW MIA Family Locating. You can find us on the web at www.storiesofsacrifice.org. Thank you for listening.